According to Money and Health Policy Institute, a charity that researches mental health and debt, half of people with debt problems have mental health problems. And nearly 40% of people with mental health problems say their financial situation worsens their mental health. When we do speak about mental health, what does mental health actually mean? In what form and shape does that take in our lives? How do we address mental health issues, especially when someone is in debt? Understandably, the cost of living crisis further worsens many communities in financial struggle. In this episode, we are speaking about mental health and debt. To navigate this month's podcast with me as your Debt Talk podcast host, Ripon Ray, I have Meghna Uddin, who had the traumatic experience of mental health difficulties with debt collectors, bailiffs, knocking on her door for money. She is also or has been a victim of financial abuse. I also have an associate professor of clinical psychology and cognitive behavioral therapy, Dr. Thomas Richardson at the University of Southampton, who also lives with bipolar disorder. Uh, finally, Stephen Coppard, Group Director of Debt Policy and Strategy of Arum, a consultant business that provides debt solutions to public and private organizations. My guest will also provide you with top tips in the subjects to help listeners near the end of the podcast. Now, if you do want to share your experience on Debt Talk, or you want to listen to a subject of your interest, um, you can get in touch with me on Twitter, yourdoctordebt.com, or email me, ripon.ray at yourdoctordebt.com. Now, let me start with Megna. Thank you, Megna, for um, taking the time to share your experience. But before we get into your troubles, what was life like for you before the world was in turmoil? Thank you, Ripon. Thank you for the invitation um, to your um, Debt Talk um, podcast. Oh, what was life like before um, my world was in turmoil? I had a very happy childhood growing up, you know, mum, dad, siblings. Um, I was the only girl, so I got a lot of attention from my dad. I was very close to my dad. And um, growing up in the Midlands, because that's where I, I was born in um, the Midlands. And then, um, yeah, had a happy childhood. Uh, mum and dad. Um, worked hard, very hard um, for us to have a good life. And um, yeah, for business purposes, um, we sold up um, in the Midlands and moved, uh, did the big move to London. So I've become a city girl since like the late 70s, early 80s. And um, I, I'm glad in ways that <laughs> mum and dad had moved to London. So yeah, life was very enjoyable growing up, you know, usual childhood things, you know, having fun with your siblings, your friends, going to school, primary school, secondary school. And in ways, when I was in secondary school, I had I sort of had my life mapped out because I wanted to study law, um, become a criminologist. You know, there was like I had all these aspirations. So, yeah, it, it was a very pleasant, very warming um, childhood growing up. So at what point did you notice that something was not quite right? Soon as I um, 
turned 16, I would say, just um, after I had given done my exams. Um, my life changed very um, dramatically. Um, in our culture, in our um, Bangladeshi culture, soon as in, in those days, and I'm talking about a very long time ago. So 16, 17, then family, uh, marriage, marriage was on sort of in the air. Um, I didn't really understand any of it at all. At all. Um, I was seeing people were visiting and then there were family members, there were cousins, you know, speaking about all of the marriage and proposals. So yeah, at that point, still, still not bothered about any of it because I didn't understand it. I didn't want to know what they were talking about, what family were on about. At that time, just before I had finished my exams my dad had felt really unwell and um, his health was deteriorating he was a diabetic he had a stroke and us as children you know as teen early you know teenagers um, me and my siblings it was very um it's hard for us to see because you know seeing he was unwell and I think that brought about how my life dramatically changed being the eldest in the family um then I felt responsibilities fell. I think my mum and my dad, especially my dad, thought, well, if anything happens to me, what will happen to my daughter? You know, um, maybe marriage um, proposal and then she can continue with her studies that way. Um, so, yeah, um, my life dramatically changed after um, I got married. Yeah. So how old were you at the time? I was 17, just 17 going on to 18. Yeah. But at what point did you feel psychologically things were going down, down, down for you? Well, when I felt straight on, because I didn't want to be in that position, I rebelled and I didn't rebel. Then I saw my dad wasn't well. And it just finding my voice. What do I say? How do I express myself? Being a teenager and just thinking about study, study, study. Um, I just wanted to go to on to college. I had to come out with good results. You know, I was I was happy about those things, but then suddenly found that everything's changed. And I find myself in this situation, a situation, this situation called marriage, you could say. And the person that my um, that I was married to, he was slightly older than me, a few years more older than me. He'd probably lived his life a bit more than I had. And um, and it wasn't a pleasant situation because I just did not want to be in that um, situation. I found it very overwhelming um, with family. I didn't I did. I, I, you know, the basics. I didn't know how to cook, clean. Those were issues. And then at that early time, my dad did say also um, that my daughter doesn't know. She only wants to study, you know, so I would like her to continue with her studies. This is what she wants to do. So, yes. And then I found myself in situations where I was being, I would say, pretty much controlled what my life was going to be like. Um, in what way? In what way? Meaning I wasn't I wasn't able to continue with my studies as I had as it was planned, as I planned. So that was stopped, um, that was put on hold. Then I found myself um, somehow being, um, found myself working, starting, I needed to get into work and found myself going into family um, business or starting up a family business with um, what now is my ex-partner. And um, that's when all the financial um, side of um, things sort of 
he was more in control of the finances and how we were doing things and the businesses that we were um my name was on the businesses or there were loans um brought in my name you know we were opening accounts in my name but i had little control over um everything to do with finances like how it was spent how the money was spent how the businesses um business um finances were dealt with so in terms of let's say mental health i mean what way or how would you define that your mental health deteriorated completely and what were you seeing seeing what were you thinking what were your thoughts like well just before I touch on how my mental health was impacted, I was also um, a victim of um, domestic abuse, um, domestic violence as well at that time from very young age, because not wanting to be in that situation, not wanting to conform, um, I found it very difficult to cope. And hence my very early on, I would say from my late teens to my early twenties, I was experiencing um, that side of mental health impact on myself, um, where I, I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know who to speak to because I didn't want to stress my family. I didn't want to tell my mom, tell my dad, because you could say I there was a lot of abuse going on, but it was, I couldn't even speak to anyone. I didn't have a voice to speak to anyone about what was happening to me. And every time I tried, it was just shut down because it was family, what would people say? I shouldn't be talking to um, anyone. I shouldn't be, you know, what will family say? What will community say? Um, oh, everything looked very good on the outside. Um, Cause you know, uh, you know, you had the car, you had the house, you had the businesses, you know, you had all the materialistic things, you know, that money could buy, so to say. And this is what everyone saw. And I found personally, my mental health was deteriorating slowly where it went came to a point where I was I began to self-harm but in then again form, but in what form does the harm take place so my self-harming was in form of um, harming myself so I was um, either cutting myself or I was doing you know just not eating properly not sleeping properly and I don't know. I don't know where my head was. It was very confusing as a young, young adult, I would say. And then becoming um, older, it just sort of manifested slowly and then continuing with the because I had I had then I had children. I had to have children. It was sort of sort of forced upon me. And um, I, that was another added on um, impact on my mental because every time I found myself um, in that situation I didn't want to be I didn't want children I didn't want I didn't want to be in the situation I was then there were moments in in the marriage where I came away I came to my mom's my mom's and my dad's and um, I did to just to stay with them I just didn't want to be um, in with um, with my with my ex-partner but then it was more of a um, catch up or get family involved you know well it shouldn't be you know you've got children now or you're going to have to you know you're going to have to you know see make amends and see how this works out but I just couldn't express myself I said I was determined I didn't want to go back to the family hold my my family home 
and it didn't happen then I was financially dependent very much on um, my ex-partner because as him having control over so I couldn't get a place of my own um, I didn't know at that time very long time ago there was um, limited um, where I could get seek support even or advice um, even if it was to do with your financially or what I was experiencing as domestic um, abuse or domestic violence so it was very limited so where I could go for support and also even speaking to the doctors or going to the doctors or GP um, I wasn't allowed to go on my own anywhere as well it was pretty much very manipulated what I was um, allowed to do but then how did you come out of it in the end so <clears throat> the big step, many, many, after many years of um, an on and off situation, patch up with um, families, family, family members, other family, external family getting involved, both families, my family and my ex-partner's family. It's suddenly I just woke up one day. I can't live like this anymore. I can't do this anymore. I need to get out of this. And then I made the decision in 2005, I would say that I can't live like this anymore. It was hard because all the joint, my joint accounts were, I didn't have access to it. He made sure, my ex-partner made sure that I didn't have access to the accounts when I decided to actually, you could say leave. And I found I had very limited money. And um, as a result of my name being in the businesses and the properties, I was found, I found that now I'm going to come on to where the debt, the whole debt scenario came in. I found letters were coming through the post. So I, where I was living, the address, my own place that I managed to have. And then I, st I started struggling with keeping up with the payments, keeping up with my bills. I was burying my head in the sand and I couldn't speak to anyone and when I say I couldn't speak to anyone I couldn't share that because I don't know if it was a bit of pride because I've come away I'd left my um, ex-partner what would people say oh and now I've got to manage on my own but I've got to think about my children so it was more what do I do now once you're self-employed I didn't know anything about the outside world. I didn't know anything about CVs. I didn't know anything about, you know, um, getting a, how do, how do I apply for a job? Because when you're on the other side, it doesn't, because you're, I, I was just managing the businesses, really working in the businesses, you could say, um, more so. Um, yeah, and that's when my life, my whole life just turned upside down when debt after debt, bailiff letters, I, it's not that I ignored, ignored the letters or the um, knocking on the door. I wouldn't open the door. I got scared. I got scared of losing my home because this was the only home I had that my children could stay with me. And where do I get the money from? So I sort of reached out to my partner. I said, no, I have to. You have to pay for um, the bills. You have to pay for mortgage, rent, you know, so on and so forth. And maintenance for the children which he point blank um, refused to do. He said, if I go back to working in the businesses, I was able to get some money. And I tried that for a while. Not that I didn't, I did do that. I thought, okay, if that saves me from getting into more debt or any letters coming in my name, I'd go and do that. It didn't work out. It was more, it was more of an impact on my mental health 
I thought I was, I thought I felt suicidal to that point that what am I going to do I was breaking down at instances behind closed doors. And again, I couldn't share with my family. I just felt that that would be an extra burden on my family. Did you ever receive any forms of mental health therapy or counselling or support? So coming to that, then eventually when I started going to my GP, I reached out to my GP. I just broke down. I went to see my GP and I just broke down one day and then started speaking about a lot of the mental health issues that I was having, how I, was, I wasn't able to cope. So they suggested having some counselling, um, mm-hmm. which was at that time um, at the surgery, at the GP practice. Um, initially, I, I will be honest, I wasn't comfortable with the idea of going to counselling and just speaking about all my problems because it just wasn't something I did before and how am I going to start doing that now and the fear of being judged um, you know judged because there are a lot of things that I might not have been proud of doing because obviously I needed to support myself and I needed to support my children and have a roof over my head and food and you know carry on so and so forth so you know asking people for money you know borrowing money how do I repay so yes I did seek um, counseling I did do that for a while and then things and then I thought how do I change my situation you know how do I come out of the debt how do I because everything was piling on I'm, I'm not going to rose it or color it in like through rose color glasses so to say I the debts were piling up because the bills were piling up the bailiffs were constantly knocking I was constantly avoiding avoiding I mean, do you know the difference between a a bailiff and a debt collector? No, I thought it was the same thing. I honestly thought bailiffs and debt collectors and debt collecting agencies, Mm -hmm. it just looks all the same for someone who wouldn't know the difference. You know, I, I don't think many people still know the difference, to be honest, what the difference between debt, debt collectors and bailiffs. Yeah. So how did you manage to rebuild your life? Well, I'm, I'm not going to say it happened overnight because it didn't. I eventually picked myself up. I eventually got a job um, in the education sector. And I thought, you know, what? I'm going to utilize. Yes, my qualifications might have been from the past when I was doing CSEs and O-levels, so on and so forth. But I thought, you know what? I've got transferable skills. And it wasn't easy because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I didn't know what, what what do I do? What job do I go into? So I found a part-time job. I worked my way up. I managed to, um, I wouldn't say resolve all my debts because there were huge amounts of debts. And then I couldn't claim um, benefit either. So when I did, I had to repay everything back. And I didn't know I couldn't because property was in my name. So it was like, I was in a very catch-22 situation. And then benefit, I would get, So I was, and then when I came across all of this, it was just learning and learning and thinking one thing after another, how do I unpick everything? And it just continued like spiraled into different things. Getting part-time work helped a bit 
So I was able to, but I had to represent myself in a lot of um, things like phoning up. I was nervous, but I didn't know what to ask. You know, letters were coming. There were um, companies calling, you know, for like, say, for example, the electricity bills, the um, services. I, I just didn't know what to do. And then as a result of property being my name, I found that I was liable um, for council tax, but then I managed to sort that out. Then I was liable for other things. So what do I do? I ended up representing myself in court. Um, this was after, I, I, I don't know, some, you know, miracles do happen. And there are people who in form of angels, you could say, there was this actual bailiff who actually gave me such brilliant advice and I can't, you know, thank him enough. He actually said, because I told him honestly, I, I yes, because after many visits from them, they said, no, you know, you have to speak to, you know, we have to speak, you know, you have to see where, what we can do. And he gave me some fantastic advice saying, no, well, go to the courts, go and speak to the officers there. Um, and they will be able to help explain your situation and you know what that really helped I didn't even know I could go and represent myself in court and speak to court and the judges myself or speak to the officers myself so those kind of learning and gaining that kind of experience and also um, looking for local services at that time there were services there but I wouldn't say there was as, as, as many services as there are now you know online or over the phone Maybe my English was okay, but then even then it was a learning curve for me um, going online and looking for what do I search for, um, who, who do, you know, all those things. So it wasn't easy building and rebuilding my life. And how's the life now? My life, I would say, you know, I'm in a much better place. I'm in a place that I can help others and I do help and support others, victims, survivors of multiple problems, financial abuse, economic abuse. And, you know, it, it's so good that economic abuse is recognized um, as, a, as under the domestic abuse bill. And it exists. People, women do suffer as well as people do suffer with not only debts, but homes are taken away, your lives are taken away as a result of life-changing circumstances. Um, my, my, in, in this case, it was um, as a result of what I was going through in, in my marriage. And then afterwards, all the debts piled up. My life now, I'm, I, um, I went on back to studying. Um, I'm part of many um, community-based organizations that help and support people. And yeah, I continue to um, advocate um, for people, um, for victims, for survivors and raise awareness. And also the key thing, another key thing that I, I'm passionate about doing, raising awareness and providing information on services that can help people, i.e. mental health, i.e. even if you're in debt or even if you're a victim of whatever it may be, or if you're exploited, you know, a various thing for young people and for adults. So yes, I'm in a much better place professionally and mentally. I had through the years sought out to go into psychological therapies as well, because I was referred as well. And I, I went, I wasn't sure about it initially, but the therapist I have had she was amazing she sort of encouraged me I kept on missing appointments but she encouraged me she sort of like put grounded some rules 
And I went on to do, um, having CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. It was for something else, but it triggered. And from that, I found there were so many underlying issues that I had to unpick and for myself to be mentally in a better place now. So, mm -hmm. yes. Megna, I'm very privileged to actually hear um, your experience for sure. Um, let me get um, Thomas Richardson into the conversation. Um, Thomas, based on what you've heard from Megna, what is your uh, initial thought? Well, I mean, first of all, Megna, thank you so much for being sort of brave enough to come and talk about your experiences. Um, you, you know, it's really, it's really important to know for other people to know that they're not alone. You know, one of the one of my research projects showed that actually two of the things that can turn financial difficulties such as debt into depression and anxiety is a hopelessness and b shame and i think what you've just done there is giving people a, a bit of hope that things can improve even when they feel like they're at their worst you know it's not not quick as you said but things can improve and b i think you've just really helped um just try and de-shame it all because why should people be ashamed about their financial situation in the current cost of living and, you know, in the situation you were in with the kind of financial control and abuse as well. So thank you. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad you're, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you're, you've got some, some help now on finances and, and therapy wise. That, that's really nice to hear. I, I think just a lot of the things you, you, you talked about, Megan, um, yeah, definitely relate to my experiences working sort of as a clinician and also as a as a researcher on those links between debt and mental health. You know, in terms of the, the the kind of just being constantly on edge with bailiffs, and there is a real risk that you know if there's aggressive debt collection tactics can essentially re-traumatize people. You know, um, people who have been through difficulties and had their own traumas, and then they have people kind of knocking at the door again it can make people feel very very on edge definitely and go on sorry. so um thomas i mean you yourself live with um bipolar disorder i mean how yeah. does that impact you or has impacted you in the past yeah well i mean bipolar disorder is something i just one of the special interests is mine as a researcher as well and i've done quite a lot about the link between sort of money and mental health and bipolar disorder it's something i live with and it's something where I'm stable for a lot of the time. I've been stable for a while now, which is good, but I, I do have episodes. And yeah, for me, it's, again, using the same kind of CBT skills, which Magda was talking about, um, looking at my work-life balance and sleep and exercise and, yeah, trying to be a bit kinder to myself sometimes and make sure I give myself a break and watch my kind of overworking perfectionist kind of tendencies, I think. Yeah, so it's I, mean, you, I mean, you mentioned also, uh, Megna mentioned about CBT. Mm. Yeah. Can you tell us the structure of CBT therapy? Yeah. So CBT is uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. It's about kind of the link between your thinking patterns, your emotions, your behaviors. And I always think of it like you're trying to understand the vicious cycles we can all get into and how we can break out of them. That's really what I like to think CBT is in a nutshell. Um, so one of the things Megan was talking about there about the burying your head in the sand, you know, that's a real theme that comes with for my research about money problems and debt is you, it becomes a vicious cycle because you're in debt and then you avoid it and it, it makes your anxiety worse, but it also um, 
and makes the finances worse long term, you know. So a lot of the ways we try to cope help short term, but they make things worse in the long run. And that's no different with finances. So CBT is trying to help um, people be more kind of balanced in their thinking. It's not about positive thinking, but, you know, being aware of maybe very self-critical tendencies or catastrophizing, assuming the worst and trying to find new ways to cope with emotions and um, kind of maybe facing your fears as well. And that might be opening the first bill, you know, like um, Magna said, it's starting small and building your way up. Um, And one of the things I'm interested in is trying to tweak CBT to um, fit in with, so yeah, to to make sure that CBT is as effective as it can be and do we need to tweak and adapt it slightly for people who are in um, real financial hardship, you know, so um, what was called IAPT, it's now being rebranded as NHS Talking Therapy, which is like the main provider of CBT for depression and anxiety in England, at least. We know that people from more deprived parts of the U- of England, sorry, don't tend to do as well from therapy. Um, they tend to, you know, finish therapy a bit more depressed and anxious. They don't get quite as much out of it and they maybe take a bit more time to improve. So, I'm interested in thinking about how we can improve outcomes. And um, you know, there's a there's a program I wrote called Space for Money Worries, which is being used in a lot of these NHS therapy services now, which is an online self-help package, but with, with some support by a professional, which is specifically designed to tackle those links between kind of debt and mental health. So helping people be a bit more balanced about their thinking, a bit kinder to themselves about their money um and helping them sort of yeah try and face their finances and get a little bit more back on top of things rather than as is often the case just kind of avoiding and burying your head in the sand because it it just feels too overwhelming when you're depressed or when you're anxious i mean i know we mentioned briefly around cbt but Mm -hmm. uh, is this the only strategy for dealing with mental health or is any other any other I mean, for, for mental health broadly, no, it's not the only therapy. I guess it's kind of the uh, one of the most commonly used one, and there's very strong evidence for it, especially for things like um, depression, anxiety. But no, there's there's lots of other um, therapies kind of offered in the NHS. It really depends on the problem. So um, there's other therapies like acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a kind of a, a spin-off, as it were, of of CBT, which is more about acceptance, and that can be quite useful for people in financial hardship um, and for you know therapies where people might be very emotionally up and down. There's a therapy called DBT. For trauma therapies, there's different options, such as something called EMDR. So no, it's not the it's not the only option. It's the one that's probably most commonly used and um, has the strongest evidence base. But yeah, there's lots of other um, things out there, and family therapy as well, for example, can be really helpful and the counselling, which um, Magna talked about. So there's there's lots of options out there. It's not the only one, but it's probably the most commonly used. So is there any alternative um, solutions uh, apart from therapy, such as medicine? There are lots of medication options. Um, I, I'm not a, I don't prescribe medicine because I'm a psychologist, so I can't really talk to that. But yeah, I think all the, uh, all the best evidence is often that it's, it's, you know, a two or three pronged approach. So, you know, if someone is, experiencing depression medication and therapy is often maybe a way forwards there's also lots of kind of lifestyle etc factors that we can do um but i think what i'm interested in really is that 
And I think what Megna was talking about speaks to that quite strongly, that there is just, you know, you were saying about how it's very, you didn't know where to go, which is completely understandable. And I think the problem people find themselves in is that they're not sure which service to go in, right? If, I, if I'm really depressed and I'm in loads of debt, who do I talk to about that? Do I go to the GP? Do I go to a, someone to speak about my debt? Um, now, the way I view it as a psychologist is, you know, you're more than three times as likely to have a mental health problem if you're in debt. Or looking at it the other way, you're more than three times as likely to be in debt if you have a mental health problem. You know, it works both ways. So from my perspective, you know, for people who are in debt and struggling with mental health, I think it is about trying to get us work on both kind of at the same time. You know, if you're getting therapy, but you're still, you know, if you're getting therapy, but you're experiencing like Magna did having you know, up to rivals in debt and having bailiffs knocking on the door, you're still going to be experiencing a lot of anxiety from that. So I think the more we try to do to integrate them and tackle both at the same time, the better. And that's some of the work I'm trying to do. Um, I think it's, it's difficult because services are set up separately, aren't they? You know, kind of mental health service here and finances there, never the twain shall meet. But I think the more we can link those services up, the better you know there's been some research that kind of embedding debt advice within mental health services shows quite a lot of promise really um and you know it, it's it's hard work to reach out from your help when depressed so if we just signpost people to you know here's a flyer ring this person for debt advice they may not do it so i think the the more joined up working we can do and the smoother the kind of links and transitions between like your mental health and your financial support the better you know the way I view it, these they're so overlapping as to be the same problem. So we need to work on them both at the same time. Thank you, Thomas. Um, let me get Stephen Coppard, um, Group Director of Debt Policy and Strategy of, of Aram. Um, 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 actually, um, Steve, I know you've worked in a variety of industry within the context of debt, um, uh, and also, um, uh, what's your kind of, I guess, first? impression on what Meghna and Thomas um, have said so far. Thanks, Ripon. So look, a couple of things that Meghna said really, really hit home with me. So, so first, I think about everything looking rosy on the outside, um, which I, I think is quite often the case. Um, you know, pe people don't realise what other people are going through until the cracks start to show. And then also the impact of economic abuse, which is a, a feature in, in most domestic abuse cases. And of course, today, you know, the, the work that, that charities like Surviving Economic Abuse and others have done in getting the economic abuse evidence form in place. Um, and e even the government now has, has launched an economic abuse toolkit for debt teams. Um, so we, we're starting to shine a light on that a lot more. And I, I was I was just re really, really heartened to hear that eventually it would have been nice had it been up front but eventually the, the support that Megna got and and actually that coming from an enforcement agent from a, a, a bailiff as well who was able to, to sign poster in, in the right direction and then Thomas mentions um, you know the people in deprived areas often finish um, therapy uh, a, a bit more anxious and depressed than when they started and that that really struck me because the financial conduct authorities financial life survey found that people living with a mental health condition who also have a debt are 50% less likely to recover than people living with the same condition who don't have a debt. 
the, the, the links between debt and mental health are, are so inextric inextricably um, linked, you know, you, you can't get away from that. So it all resonates really loud and clear with me. And, and having had personal experience, um, first of, of debt related mental health, um, and then latterly mental health related debt problems, I could just say this is all too common. And I, I don't think that we speak about it enough. So it's, it's fantastic. I think that we're helping to shine a light on, on this today. And, and look, the industry as a whole is, is, is really good at this, but we have some way to go as a nation before money troubles are spoken about. I'll, I'll say it as, as freely as mental health concerns, you know, there was a YouGov poll a couple of years ago that found 44% of people are comfortable talking about their mental health, while only 20% of people are comfortable talking about debt. So just, just think about that for a minute. People are twice as likely to tell you they have a mental health problem than they are to tell you that they have money troubles. Um, and, you know, the, the, Gunny, the government's money and pension service supported by the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute, who you mentioned earlier, they've just issued an evidence-based best practice guide, which covers everything from training staff to accessible product and service design and clear communications. So I think the fact that we continue to invest time and effort into this area shows that there, there is more to be done, but it's a, a recognised topic now. Um, Steve, um, from my experience of debt advice, there are several debt options available to individuals struggling. There is also a regulatory breathing space as a short-term measure. And what was the underlying purpose of breathing space? So just, just to give a bit of context, I think, Rip on then, breathing, breathing space was a conservative manifesto commitment from 2017 under Theresa May's government. Um, and at the time, there, there was a programme of activity to support what the government was calling jams, the people who were just about managing. And the overarching intention was to give people time to seek advice and then assistance to apply for a, sust a sustainable solution to their debt. And it recognised that for, for some people, the cost of living can become too great. And look, this was, this was 2017, right? So we, we're talking pre-COVID, we're talking pre-Ukraine, we're talking pre-cost of living crisis as we know it now. So, so this, this problem's only got worse since, since 2017. But it, it recognised even then that the cost of living can become too great and that problem debt could be hard to escape, which lead, led to higher levels of family breakdown, uh, worklessness, stress and mental health issues. And the breathing space was intended to provide the right safeguards to prevent abuse so that someone in, in serious problem debt could have legal protection from the further interest charges and enforcement action for a period. It was initially defined as up to six weeks, but we know that that ended up being 60 days. Um, but in the case of a mental health crisis breathing space, it, it's, it's practically indefinite. Um, and, and then there was the statutory debt repayment plan that was all, also part of that, that pledge. That was intended to help people pay back their debts in a manageable way. But as we know, the, the government's decided to pause the introduction of, of the, the statutory debt repayment plan until the outcome of the personal insolvency review is known. Um, how does it work, though, in practice? How does breathing space, both mental health and standard breathing, uh, uh, breathing space, actually work in practice? How do you get it? So it, it's, it's through uh, the application of a, a debt advice agency. Um, so, look, it's, it's, re it's really, really important that, that, that people seek free debt advice. And I, I, will, I will talk about this a little bit later as well. But I, I, I completely understand that it can feel like a mountain to climb um, to, to, to start addressing debt. And actually, for, for some people, 
the problems they have in their life are bigger than the debt. So the debt takes second place to, to other things, e even though it's, and I think Thomas mentioned, you know, sometimes short-term coping mechanisms um, aren't necessarily the best thing for us in the long run, but you deal with what you can deal with today. The, the, the beauty about getting free debt advice is it allows you to have one conversation once, not one conversation multiple times with different organizations who may or may not accept what you're saying and actually work to different rules. Um, so I, I think in, you know, we, we know that, that mental health, poor mental health is not an on-off switch. You know, it's a nuanced gradient, a sliding scale, and it's it's not binary either. It doesn't travel in a single direction. You know, you, you could be on a long-term descent but still have good and bad days along that journey. So in practical terms, there is a, a mental health crisis breathing space, which is only av available to somebody who's actually receiving mental health crisis treatment. And that breathing space lasts as long as the treatment does, plus a further 30 days. Um, and look, a mental health crisis is it's fairly specific in definition. So it's when somebody feels like they're at breaking point and need your urgent help. So it could be extreme anxiety, panic attacks, flashbacks, or, or feeling suicidal or, or self-harming, um, or having an episode of, of hypermania or mania, feeling very high or psychosis, um, you know, hear, hearing voices or feeling extremely paranoid. Um, and look, th this, could, this could be as a result of bereavement, addiction, money problems, relationship breakdown, workplace stress, exam stress, housing problems. It could just be part of an ongoing mental health diagnosis. Or people might not even know why they feel that way. And I think then just by contrast, um, you know, the, 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 the more, and I, I, don't, I don't want to play this down, but more low key mental health issues um, are, are dealt with differently. So they're dealt with it as any other vulnerability would be. And, and that's your standard 60 day, um, 60 day breathing space. Meghna initially mentioned about bailiffs and debt collectors. Now, Steve, you've been around in the industry for a very long time. What is the difference between the two? So I, I was I was really interested to hear that because I had a very similar conversation with my wife just the other night about this. Um, she, I'm I'm a debt nerd. She she is and uh, she works for the NHS. So Megna's experience is is a common point that I actually I make to the industry quite often. The terms we use day in day out are not understood by most people, and it, it doesn't help. You know when when mainstream media talk about uh, things like aggressive debt collectors and what they actually mean is an agent who's enforcing a court order following 20 to 40 communication attempts so let's define it a debt collection agency can only send you or a debt collector can only send you letters messages and call you and they do this at the instruction of a client who believes you owe them money they'll never visit your home or take control of your goods so that that's a debt collector it's, it's all about communication and encouragement to pay an enforcement agent is there to execute a court order or warrant. And the most common kind, um, it would be a civil enforcement. So there, there are others, but let, let's, let's not get into that here and now. It's, it's, civil enforcement is the most common kind, but there is a court order sitting behind it. Now, the legislation that, over, that overarches this, that, that, gives it, that gives it its force, is actually called the Taking Control of Goods Act. The reason this is, is because by the time that somebody goes to court, it is assumed that you can no longer pay. And so they're coming to look for assets to sell to satisfy the debt. 
in practice, seizing assets is expensive for the person. So the, the fees will rack up uh, on, on top of the debt and the person in debt has to pay them, which actually detracts from them being able to repay the principal debt and causes an awful lot more stress and, and worry. And then when you take goods away, you don't get anywhere near the, the market value for them at auction. Um, and there are so many things that the, the enforcement agents can't take grip on. You know, they, they can't take things that you need to live. So you have to have a chair, you have to have a bed, you have to have curtains, you have to have a refrigerator, you have to have knives and forks and plates. Uh, you know, we, we, we're talking about it, should you be lucky enough to 50 inch TV on the wall? That's that's the sort of thing that's going to go. And what do you pay for a second hand TV? So so it's it, yes, they are there to, to execute the court order. They're not necessarily debt collectors. They are they are there to go and take control of goods, but they will try and get you to resolve the issue without a visit taking place. The best agencies will always try and resolve cases at what's called the compliance stage. So that the compliance stage is, is effectively it acts just like a debt collection agency, um, except they can obviously escalate to a visit afterwards. Now, if they can't get hold of you or come to any arrangement, then the enforcement agent will visit your property and, and you know, it, it will, will give you a final chance to pay. And if, if you can't and there's no reason to prevent the visit from going ahead, then the agent will assess the, the value of your eligible goods and, and they may actually take them away. I think the critical thing to remember with civil enforcement is that they can't break into your house. Um, you, you know, that, that's you, so so where, where Megma said earlier that she, she didn't open the door, you know, they, they, can't, they can't force that issue. But it's important for people to understand the end to end, because if if you're unable to resolve it at that point, then it may well go to litigation, which can end up in bankruptcy, which has, you know, uh, impacts on people's credit scores for another six years. Um, it's not saying that it's not the right answer for some people, but as a rule, um, it, it would be much better if, if it could be resolved at the earliest stage in the process. Thank you, Stephen. Um, for those who are listening to Debt Talk podcast and want to share your experience or want to listen to a specific um, debt-related subject, you can get in touch with me on Twitter, your Dr. Debt, or you can email me, ripon.ray at yourdrdebt.com. Let me speak to my panelists now about them providing Debt Talk listeners with top tips on dealing with mental health and debt during the cost of living crisis. So let me start with Megna. I just want to echo on what um, Thomas and um, Steve have both said about um, seeking advice, not feeling, firstly, not feeling hopeless and dealing with it very early on. Because I think mo most of the time, because we're, we're not aware how early we can deal with it or can we deal with it and what are the um, processes are to actually um, reaching out to someone or calling someone up and the other thing is if you're not sure please go and speak to someone because I think most of the time we don't want to share especially when we're facing financial difficulties financial hardship we don't want to share that we're struggling we don't want to share that we can't pay our bills our rent our mortgage that we can't afford food you know it, it it's reality and more so we've seen it with um cost of living um rising and um 
the the amount of support um, that really truly that or, um, companies, organisations, banks, and other uh, services have shown um, along with um, mental health. So please speak to those services. Don't keep those letters. Don't ignore the phone calls because um, yeah, I would just say we you just need to speak, um, share share what's going on, share your circumstance, what you can afford, if you can afford, what you can't afford, if you're on benefits. Um, so, and there's a lot of them um, also in, in boroughs that you live in or the areas um, of your um, residence, you can also reach out to the local council because there's support that they can also provide um, with some relief as well as um, reach out to charity, charity organizations that help with um, um, debt solving, resolving debts. So yeah, definitely speak out, share with someone close to you that can advise you in the right way. Um, if not, if there's no one there that you can speak or share that with, if it's not a family member or a close friend, um, reach out to your um, GP because now most GP services have this social prescribing and um, service that, that can sort of like, you know, um, signpost or refer you to the right places. And speak to the, uh, as Stephen mentioned, debt collectors, speak to the bailiffs, um, not to ignore um, correspondence, not to ignore the phone calls. Um, and I know that that's what I was doing in the past because I just didn't want to acknowledge what was going, going on. But slowly I realized that this is um, when I share my um, share my own experience or when I'm even um, supporting someone or advising them, I would advise, let's sit down, let's go through um, what, um, you know, sometimes when we sort of put it down on paper, write it out, what, what is actually what's going on, where what we what does our what do our debts look like? It might not be that it might be a huge amount, but it just feels like at the time it's a lot to deal with and slowly just going through having a plan um, of who to pay first you know how to go about paying really does make a difference but slowly you know not to feel hopeless not to lose hope there is support out there um, I know sometimes there are some maybe some advisors or some customer server service support um it's not that great, but there are people that do help and do support. We just need to um, not stop and not just totally um, just shut off from what's going on in our lives. To see L that. Lovely. Lovely, Megna. Thank you. And now to Thomas. Yeah. So um, like Megna's saying, ask for help. I think the key thing here, like I said, is trying to get ask for help about both finances and mental health at the same time um and you can actually find your own nhs talking therapy if you just google it on the nhs website you can self-refer you don't necessarily need to go through your gp for kind of therapy for depression anxiety um don't be ashamed you're not alone there's lots of people unfortunately who are in the same situation so just i think be kind to yourself about this and try and talk about it yeah, uh, Megan was saying about, you know, trying to talk to creditors, yes, but I think actually being quite open that you do have mental health problems because they should treat you differently as a vulnerable customer. Um, and then finally, I think just, yeah, facing your fears, like I said, one step at a time. It's very, 
completely understandable to avoid, but it, the bills will just pile up. Your mental health is going to get worse. So trying to kind of open one bill, you know, face your fears gradually, slowly, one step at a time, it's just going to make you feel a little bit more confident, a little bit more hopeful that you will eventually be able to dig yourself out of this situation. Lovely. And finally, Steve. Thanks, Ripon. So I'm glad I had four written down because my first three have gone already. Um, so, so look, I, I, I had, I had um, you have to face it at some point. I had make a plan and I also had, you, you know, the, the, the shame and guilt point and not blaming yourself. One in eight people at the moment in the UK are in problem debt uh, and problem debt is where you're behind. We define it as where you're behind with one or more household bills. So so you, you certainly aren't alone. So my, my tip will be uh, something around the benefit you can actually get the, the, the side benefit of going for debt advice is the secondary services that they can put you in touch with. So one is income maximizers um, who can look at benefits and, and discretionary housing payments. And I've actually seen cases where the benefit or the income that people were entitled to receive has wiped out their debt. So, so it, it's incredibly important. Another is a company called Zero Deposit. So if people are in um, rented accommodation, maybe stuck in, in what we call the lifetime deposit trap where you've got a, a deposit wrapped up in a property and you can't afford to save for another one, you can actually liquidate that for, and bring it down from six weeks rent to around one week's rent and they will indemnify the landlord for you. Um, and you can do that whether you're looking for a new property or whether it's for your existing property. There are services out there like Reach Out um, from a company called Sigma, who will put you in touch with uh, bereavement counsellors, with, with cancer charities, um, with addiction, gambling, alcohol, um, whatever you can imagine situation you're in, they can, give, they can put you in touch with specialist support. And what, one more that I'll mention is there's a company called Superfy, uh, Superfy Finance. They do a little app where if you've got loads of credit cards and loans and, and buy now, pay laters and that sort of thing, and you're, you're about to tip over the edge, but you're not quite there. You're not really in, in the debt space yet, but you know you're, you're coming up to it. What Superfy does, you can put all of your debts into the app and it will tell you which how, what, how much to pay off each one to get you out of debt the fastest. So there, 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 are, there are tools out there, there are services out there, there is so much help available to people, but we can't give you that help unless you're talking to us. Lovely, it's good to talk. Um, I want to thank my panel members for giving their time to share their experience and knowledge on Debt Talk podcast. My next episode will be on LGBT plus and money trouble on Debt Talk podcast during cost of living crisis. Thank you for listening to Debt Talk from your host, Ripon Ray.